We are entering now into our Advent season, the Sundays of Advent. We will be looking at nativity passages and focusing on one of the classic Christmas carols. Today our carol is, What Child Is This? And here's the lesson from Luke chapter 2. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the angels returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We shall, as we conclude our service in a little while, sing that Christmas carol, What Child Is This? And just for your, um, maybe to help you move along as we look at that text of that uh, hymn, on page eight, a couple of pages over in your order of service, your bulletin, uh, are the place for the sermon notes, and there is printed there the three stanzas of that Christmas carol, What Child Is This? There is a refrain that ends each one of these stanzas, and it's called, The Babe, The Son of Mary. The Babe, The Son of Mary. The Babe, the son of Mary. It's about a baby. And you know, as we look back over the way God works, God works with a baby time and time again. We see it in Abraham. When God called Abraham out from among the Gentiles and determined that he was going to bring to himself a people, a covenant people, and place his love upon them and save them from all the mass of humanity. He was going to raise up a great nation that would glorify him forever, would fill the earth in heavens with praise, and would be that great worshiping congregation. He started with a baby. He talked about little Isaac, and oh, you know the story, how long it seemed to take through several decades before the little baby was born 
to Sarah. And you know all the drama and everything that went along. We might say, come thou long expected Isaac. When God's people went down into Egypt and there over time were enslaved by the wicked Pharaoh and God heard their cries and saw their suffering and determined that he would save them, he started with a baby. Little Moses in the bulrushes. And you know the story of God raising up that baby 40 years in the king's palace, 40 years in the desert, and then 40 years leading God's people in the promised land and bringing the law and all that Moses did. Generations passed. God's people entered the land, but they were oppressed time and again by the Canaanite people. And the most fierce of all these tribes were the Philistines. And they needed some kind of relief from the Philistines. And when God heard their cry and sent them a savior, a deliverer, a rescuer, a mighty warrior, there was born to a barren woman a little baby. And we have the narrative of it in the book of Judges. Samson. And the story continues. When God's people had drifted so far from him and they seemed like they were confederated and they were divided and it looked like they were about to be amalgamated into the heathen of Canaan and God needed a man to stand up and to call out and to hold up the banner and to raise up a king and to anoint kings and establish the Davidic kingdom. He started with a little baby, Samuel. You know the story, born to a barren woman and dedicated to God for all of his life. In fact, if you want to look at the history of that very carefully in the Old Testament, we will see that there's a picture and a beautiful story in the story of Ruth. You remember the story of Ruth, how Ruth was a Moabite woman and as her mother-in-law and her, her, brother, her husband and brother-in-law and father-in-law all came down into the land of Moab during a time of famine, and you know the story quite well, how that Ruth clung to her mother-in-law Naomi and Naomi's God and she became part of the covenant by a personal placing of her faith in the one true God and then eventually she marries one of the men of the land when they return back to, to the land of Judah and she marries Boaz and you know the story beautiful beautiful love story there in the in the Old Testament toward the end of the time of the Judges and there's a scene right at the very end of that story that I'll just read a couple of phrases from. Let me just find it here. It's in Ruth chapter 4. And Ruth and Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Oh, listen to that phraseology. She bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer that he may be renowned in Israel. Listen to what they say about this little baby. He shall be to you a restorer of life. A savior, a restorer of life. This little baby. And notice what it says here in the very next of the text. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. What's the picture? 
a woman holding a baby in Bethlehem. They were in the town of Bethlehem, the land of bread, the house of bread. And by the way, the baby's name was Obed, which means servant. He was to serve God's people. He went on to become the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, who became the great king of Israel. And it's not unusual, I think, to find the prophet, the prophet, especially the prophet Isaiah, when he talks about salvation, he puts it in these terms. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And he talks about his reign and his titles. And in Advent seasons past, we've preached through this particular passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, in every particular, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, all of those appellations that apply to Jesus Christ, showing his greatness of his kingdom. It says, the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That seems to be the way God works. When God's people need to be saved, God gives them a little baby. And raises up that baby to do the job that needs to be done. In 1865, in Glasgow, Scotland, an Englishman was there working as an insurance salesman. He sold maritime insurance. He was 29 years old, and he was noted not only for being a very successful salesman, but he was a devout Christian. And he studied the scriptures voraciously. And one of the things that he enjoyed doing was writing poetry. And about that time in 1865, he became extremely ill and even despaired of life. And not only did he have a very serious physical illness, but he went through a period of deep and oppressing depression. And as he read the scriptures, and by the way, that was the formula for the cure of souls for hundreds of years in our culture. What was the cure for depression? Reading of the word of God the life-giving fountain, the light to shine into a dark soul. The reading of the Word of God was the prescription given by almost everyone who wanted to pull through depression. The writer of Rock of Ages, Augustus Toplady, suffered from severe depression. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, suffered from depression. Many of God's saints have suffered from depression. In fact, even David, when he was in a period of despondency, had to finally come to himself and say, why art thou cast down, O my soul? And coming out of that 
depression and working through as the Lord began to give him strength and heal his body and bring light to his soul, William C. Nix wrote a poem, a long poem. It was called The Manger Throne. It had many, many stanzas to it. And he wrote it in contemplating that nativity scene over in the Gospel of Matthew where the the Magi, the kings of the east, came and worshipped around the manger of Jesus, the picture of him being worshipped there. And out of that long poem called The Manger Throne, which became later on called The Manger Song, came this song that we look at today. What child is this? We have here three stanzas that were adapted by Nix to be, not by Dix, not only to be sung as a hymn, but he put it to a very popular, at that point it was about three centuries old, a very popular folk tune that we know well today, Greensleeves, and made it easy to sing. The thing about it is it, it had a strong and dominant theme, but because of the humility of the manger, it's in the minor key. It's soulful and haunting and yet beautiful. And even staying in the minor key, it arises with a couple of good strong major chords there in those last strophes and gives us a beautiful song. But look at the words. Each stanza has a title for Christ. In stanza one, when it asks the question, what child is this? who's laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds' watches are keeping. This question is asked. Now the answer. This is Christ the King. This is the little baby that Isaiah talked about, the son that was given, the child that was brought forth to raise up the fallen house of David to be the king. Stanza two. Ask the quote, why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners here. The silent word is pleading. Why has he come in such humble circumstance? Well, that is in order that he might reach the most humble and vile and helpless sinner. That's who I am. I am that sinner. And a throne of ivory and a magnificent king ruling upon that throne would have been an intimidation factor for me that would have been overwhelming. But a baby in a manger among the animals is something I can grasp, something that draws me, something that pulls me. So he says to the Christian sinners here, the silent word is pleading. And in this stanza, He's called the Word 
made flesh. And that's really the great mystery that we celebrate. Two great mysteries of the Christian faith. The incarnation and the resurrection. Both having to do with flesh. One has to do with God in the flesh. The other having to do with the resurrection of the flesh. Mysteries. High mysteries. Inscrutable. And yet so clear and plain proclaimed by the shepherds and by all said God has come in to the creation into humanity by way of one who is an authentic human and yet still is fully divine mystery the word made flesh oh I can't go without looking at that third line of that second stanza nails spear shall pierce him through. There's no salvation without the spike and without the lance. Making wounds from which flowed blood that is the purging agent of all of our sins. There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flow lose all their guilty stains that's the cross the splinters in that wooden manger would be matched one day by the splinters in the old rugged cross and he would hang there and die there for what he says the very next line the cross he bore for me, for you. Jesus laid in that manger in order that he could grow up to hang on that cross. And we are saved by that death. It's a sacrificial death. It's an atoning death. It's a cleansing death. It's a vivifying and life-creating death that he died. And he died for me, for you. He died in our place. He died in our stead. That cross was erected there on that mountain for you and for me as the full payment of our sins. But he took our place there on that cross. And then the final stanza, he calls upon adoration and worship and reflecting upon the Matthew narrative of the, the Magi. He says, so bring him incense, gold, and myrrh. Come, peasant king, to own him. The two opposite extremes of the sociological scale, the peasant and the king, the serf and the crown come together at the foot of the cross and adore the Christ who was crucified there. So he's called him the Christ, the king, the word made flesh. And finally, in the third stanza, he's called the king of kings. Salvation brings let loving hearts enthrone him. In other words, put him on the throne of your life. We don't crown him king. <laughs> I hear people say, we're going to crown Christ king one day. No, we're not. He's already crowned. The Bible says he was crowned with glory and honor at his resurrection. And when he ascended, he was seated next to the Father. All of the exaltation and the coronation has already been accorded Christ in the world and in the universe as the son of God and the rightful heir to David's throne. But what about you? 
Making him king of your life means that you become a loyal, devoted subject of his. That you enter into his kingdom by submission, by repentance. That you voluntarily come and lay down your weapons of warfare and stop your rebellion and abandon your sin and call upon him to take you into his fold and to be your king and to be your shepherd. That's what that means. Raise the song on high. The virgin sings her lullaby. Joy, joy. I wonder if one of the pastors down the road is going to pick joy to the world as one of the, I don't know. I don't know which hymns are going to be selected as we go along this Advent season. We'll take them as they come. But somebody's got to pick up on Isaac Watts' joy to the world. And if you don't, we're going to have to get it all right here. Joy, joy. Christ is born. Christ is born. 